Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. Alrighty, PSPS listeners, thank you for joining us. Today I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Falowski. We're going to go ahead and have a very interesting conversation today. Dr. Falowski, thank you for making time. We know you're very busy. Go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, well thank you for having me on this podcast. So I'm uh, Stephen Falowski. I'm a functional neurosurgeon uh, in the Philadelphia uh, region at this point. So as a functional neurosurgeon, I completed my normal residency training in, in neurosurgery but then went on to do extra training in things like neuromodulation uh, and minimally invasive procedures. So a lot of what I do revolves around spinal cord stimulators, deep brain stimulators, peripheral nerve stimulators, but I also do a lot of the minimally invasive type procedures such as rhizotomies, interspinous spacers, SI fusion. So from my perspective, I'm kind of one of the interesting neurosurgeons because I was actually dual trained. So I, mm. I trained on actually complex spine surgery, so screws and rods and fusions, but then also on these minimally invasive approaches and functional neurosurgery. So I kind of look at patients in a very different light than most uh, surgeons would. Nice. That is interesting. Have that dual train in the background as well. Tell us, Dr. Flowski, obviously you you know can do the both types of the kind of the interventions as well. I'm sure a lot of listeners out there are pain physicians. What's the relationship like between the interventional pain people and the spine surgeons? Yeah, that's that's actually a great question, Adam, because I, I think the relationships that are starting to grow now between interventional pain and neurosurgeons and just spine surgeons in general, and I think this is an important relationship because when you take a patient and you follow them through their, their pathway, um, they usually start off with possibly their primary care physician. They're suffering from pain. They may go through some conservative measures. But then you're usually sent to, or hopefully sent to, an interventional pain physician who starts doing other conservative measures. And then somewhere along that, that whole cycle, they, they may end up seeing a surgeon. And then whether or not they get surgery, they may come back to the interventional pain physician. But what's interesting is, is that these patients are best suited when treated by both the, the surgeon and the interventional pain physician because it's complementary what we do. You know, we don't like to always jump into spine surgery, so we start off with conservative measures. And then when these conservative measures do fail, then, you know, there's always the option for, say, like an open spine surgery. So I always like to say, too, like these patients begin and end their path with the interventional pain physician, but somewhere in the middle is the spine surgeon. And I think one of the drawbacks, I think, that's held both fields behind with spine surgery and interventional pain is that they haven't had relationships. They've sort of looked at each other as adversarial, you know, taking cases from each other and not really realizing that it's it's complementary to each other. And I think we're starting to see that growing now with the different types of procedures that are available. Yeah. Changes coming in. And you kind of alluded to it. How could that be improved in a practical sense, that relationship between the, the interventional pain people and the spine surgeons? Yeah. It leads to a very, I think, a very important point or a good point of what's happening now in the space in the sense that you know, for the spine surgeons, open spine surgery and these big, what we call wax, you know, pedicle screws and large fusions, they've come under a lot of scrutiny. You know, we haven't had great data to support what we do. And because of that, we've, we've had cuts in reimbursement, bundling of coding, and it's become a little more difficult for the spine surgeons. 
On the flip side of that, minimally invasive interventions have been growing. And it's been growing because I think both physicians and patients are looking for it. I think part of the problem was, though, is that spine surgeons weren't embracing these minimally invasive procedures. Things like interspinous spacers or minimally invasive decompressions, SI fusions, these type, you know, even spinal cord stimulators. And what that did is it opened up the door for interventional pain physicians Mm. to expand what they do. And I do believe that interventional pain physicians do have a skill set that can do these type of procedures. But I think that's what we're starting to see happen is, is that what used to be kind of the, what we would say the lower end for the spine surgeon, these minimally invasive procedures, they may be on say the higher end for interventional pain, but it's Mm. very much in the wheelhouse for both of these specialties. And I think now that we're, these relationships are growing and the space is actually changing and pushing more towards these minimally invasive procedures, having great data, increasing the volume and adoption that we have for this. I think that's what's helping the space grow. Nice. I like that. Yeah. And, and and to help this space grow, it sounds like, you know, you're on the cutting edge here. Other listeners are understanding that the space is evolving. Walk me through kind of how you talk to a patient to get them on board and get them to see that, you know, the, the pain in the spine space is evolving and here's what you can offer them. Yeah, absolutely. So when I talk to patients, um, sometimes I'll jokingly say to a patient, my job is to try to keep screws and rods out of your back. But at the same time, there's always there, there are indications for when that is necessary and we have to do that. But there are a lot of procedures now that don't burn any bridges. Interspinous spacers, for instance, don't include any bony removal. So if you think about like a minimally invasive, percutaneous outpatient procedure with a very safe risk profile, what's the worst case scenario? It doesn't work. And then now the spine surgeon has to go in and do the open spine surgery, which is a larger three to four hour surgery, three month recovery, physical therapy, but you gave that patient a chance to potentially not need to have such an, a large surgery. So when I talk to patients, I tell them that, you know, we're, we're doing very minimally invasive, safe procedures that have mm-hmm. potentially great efficacy and success rates in the hopes that you won't need something even more invasive later. Nice. I like that. So the operative word is kind of minimally invasive, like you said, low risk, percutaneous, shorter recovery period. Yeah, I love it. And you mentioned a few of the interventions, Dr. Filowski. Are there any in particular that you're really excited that are coming on the pipeline or, or you're doing already? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we saw a very large expansion and adoption in interspinous spacers over the last four years with the interventional pain physicians, specifically devices like Vertiflex. We've also seen a higher adoption rate for what's called the mild procedure, which is just these minimally invasive lumbar decompressions that interventional pain can do. But I think what we're starting to see now for the future, some of the ones to be excited about are we're now also looking at interspinous fixation and fusion, for instance, which is where instead of just putting a spacer in, you can also try to induce a spinous process fusion. This now expands the toolbox because with interspinous spacers, we were just treating spinal stenosis. But now we can also treat spinal stenosis with degenerative changes. So I'm excited about that to see where that goes. But I think also the other one is like SI joint fixation. There are minimally invasive percutaneous approaches that can be done by interventional pain physicians to treat SI joint dysfunction, which I think is highly underdiagnosed. Mm. Those are two of the things that I'm very excited with now. But there's 
there's also a lot going on now with with spinal cord stimulation and neuromodulation and especially what we call the peripheral nerve stimulation world where we're looking into very tiny electrodes with very small batteries or external batteries and wearables so i think we're even as much as everything is exploding right now i think we're actually very much in our infancy of where all these new therapies are going nice nice i like it you mentioned the the interspinous fusion fixation the si joint fixation the peripheral nerve stem we all know that there's you know the industry courses as a surgeon what area do you think is really important for example is it knowing when to go ahead and put something in is it reviewing the imaging is it you know setting up the the tray and getting the team on board is it following up with the patient is it the the technical aspect of it what in particular would you recommend that listeners really focus and hone in on that is a really good question you're bringing up because it has to do with the way you know these procedures overlap between spine surgeons and interventional pain. Spine surgeons were trained very differently and think very differently because we've done a lot of open procedures. We look at our own, you know, our imaging all the time. We determine whether someone's a surgical candidate. That's not something that necessarily uh, interventional pain physicians had during their training. So I think it's very important that we already realize that these therapies are in the skill set for interventional pain physicians. What I think we have to do a good job of with things like industry courses or even with society is training interventional pain physicians, patient selection, imaging review. How do you actually choose who this is going to be used for, you know, without just blindly looking at a radiologist report? So I think we always, with these courses, we need to take a step back, talk a little bit about anatomy, biomechanics, tie it into imaging review, which then ties into patient selection. And then ultimately, it's the actual surgical or you know technique of putting it in, which is in every it's in everyone's wheelhouse. So I think those other things are the most important. Mm-hmm. Do you see generalizing here? Do you see people not being selective enough? They're being you know too aggressive, or is it the other side of the spectrum and they're kind of too hesitant, too conservative? Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both, and it's very physician dependent. But I think the error is usually on the side of being conservative. And I think that's true for anybody who learns a new therapy, whether even it's a surgeon or interventional pain, that you kind of always want to start off with your home run hits. So you're mm-hmm. overcautious, you're very conservative, and then I think you miss a lot of patients. And over the first few years of launching like interspinous spacers, that's something we very much realized. And because lumbar spinal stenosis is one of the most common ailments that interventional pain physicians treat, and those patients are sitting in those practices. So Physicians were actually being very cautious, though, and not necessarily selecting for all of them because they're looking for the home run hit. And I think that's part of what the training has to do is show you that, you know, yes, it's great to always have the home run hit, but you also don't want to miss the opportunity to help people who could benefit from it. Yeah. Is there enlighten me? I know with the, the spinal cord stem, the neuromodulation, it's uh, I've heard like you want, you know, your trial to implant rate around like mid 80s or something with these other devices, the ones that are coming down the pipeline that get you excited. Are there any kind of good numbers to look out for just for listeners get a ballpark idea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these the devices that are come to market, they usually have studies that went went through to get them in FDA approval. Like, for instance, uh, with the VertiFlex interspinous spacer device, as well as even with the mild procedure, they quote numbers of about 70 to 80% of patients are going to do well with the therapy for as far out as even five years. 
sometimes the way I view that is you can even prevent someone from needing further spine surgery for, for five years with a 70 to 80% chance. So I think we actually end up seeing very similar numbers to what we see in spinal cord stimulation that you're looking for that probably at the least you want to have two thirds of your patients do well. I think of it from two standpoints and it's kind of like the pro, you know, the yin and the yang in the sense that these are minimally invasive, percutaneous procedures, extremely safe, you know, high chance of success. So, you know, if the worst case scenario is the patient just doesn't do well with it, you haven't actually done any harm to the patient. You've actually given them a chance at doing better. But at the same time, we also have to keep in mind the, the cost benefit ratio in healthcare and not just overutilizing therapies as well. So it's very much a balance. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then, like you said, it's a balance in getting back to the relationship part. You said a lot of these, you know, procedures are in the wheelhouse of interventional pain physicians. Like you said, you obviously trained with a different kind of uh, mindset and specialty. What are some things you talked about the good things that people do? What are some common things that you've seen done that an interventional pain physician might not be aware of or might not recognize that's kind of interfering at the relationship with the spine surgeon or interfering with the care of the patient? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the, it's kind of on both sides. I think the interventional pain physician is worried that they may burn bridges with the spine surgeons in the sense that the spine surgeons, if they feel that their pain physicians are not or doing therapies they shouldn't be doing, that they'll no longer send to them even the conservative med, you know, conservative stuff like epidural steroid injections. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, I think the spine surgeons are worried that they're they're losing their patients and it's becoming a little bit of a turf war. And I can tell you, as the person who, like, I always joke, I'm the token neurosurgeon who's invited to all the pain meetings. You know, it's because <laughs> I tend to, like, bridge that gap because I see it from both sides. And I think that interventional pain should be doing these procedures. And I also think that spine surgeons just started embracing these procedures and also embracing that type of relationship with the pain physician. And I can tell you that I, I always break it down. It's, it's the same three cautions or, or worries that the, the spine surgeon has. One is, is that they think that these procedures are going to get done and there's going to be complications by the interventional pain physician that they're not going to be able to, to deal with. And the truth of the matter is that's not true. I mean, these are very safe procedures. Majority, like if we take interspinous spacers, they're outside the canal. There's no bony removal. They're not near the nerves. The worst case scenario is something like a spinous process fracture, which is treated conservatively. So there's not the fear that, you know, the, the neurosurgeon is going to have to come in in the middle of the night and deal with the complication for that. Then there's the idea that the surgeon thinks the pain physician is going to be taking the patients from them. The truth of the matter is there's not significant overlap with these procedures with, say, open spine surgery or even like with SI fusion, right? So we, with these procedures, we're looking at the patient population that is usually either older with medical comorbidities and they're no longer considered an open surgical candidate, or it's on the other side where the patient's either younger or their imaging's not that severe or their symptoms are not severe enough that the surgeon feels it justifies doing an open surgery. So you can do these procedures to try to prevent them from progressing to needing an open surgery or just trying to help their pain. So there's actually, I think, very little overlap in the sense that we're taking patients from each other. And then the um, the third thing is is that, and, and this is the one I think bothers the surgeons a lot, is, oh, you know, these minimally invasive techniques are, are not going to work, and then now I have to go in and fix it with a revision spine surgery. And that's very much not the case, right? These, If you look at interspinous spacers or even just these graphs for percutaneous SI fusion, there's nothing that creates a non-virgin 
area for them to go into. So the inner spinous spacer, for instance, is outside the lamina. It's outside the canal. The, the surgeon still has a very much what we call virgin spine that they're going to go into and operate on if they ever had to then operate. So those are usually the biggest three concerns that spine surgeons have. And because of that, the interventional pain community has to deal with those three concerns from the spine surgeons. But I think with just a little bit of education, I think both sides can realize that those really shouldn't have to be concerns. Nice. I like that. Very well articulated, the three clear things. Is there anything pain physicians kind of as a surgeon that you'd want you'd want to tell them to kind of encourage them to, you know, bridge that gap better and speak that language of a surgeon a little bit better as well. Obviously, they can bring up the three points, but is there anything else that the pain physician should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would, I would think one piece of advice is the interventional pain physicians should always be reviewing their own imaging, not just relying on a radiology report. Because one of the things that we teach in all the courses for all these different therapies is that physician's interpretation of the imaging is very different than a radiologist's interpretation because you're looking at it from a very different angle, understanding the procedures that you're trying to evaluate for. The other piece of advice I would give for the, the interventional pain community is, is to actually have open discussions with your spine surgeons. You know, talk about the therapies that you want to do and where mm-hmm. do you think that they fit in. You know, when you go back to your community and you want to say do interspinous spacers, it's very easy to just go and talk to the spine surgeon that you have a relationship with and say, I'm going to send you referrals. If you don't think they're surgical candidates, I'd like to actually do this procedure. That's also demonstrating to the spine surgeon it's not about taking cases. It's also about having a relationship where you're still saying, I want your surgical opinion first, and then we can proceed with these other options. So that's my other piece of advice. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Anything else? You kind of answered it for the residents out there, the fellows, the newer attendings, the attendings with more experience who want to kind of develop that relationship. What practical things can they do? Like you said, they can go to the the surgeon and say, this is what I want to do. Anything else? practically that they could do? Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, a lot of advice to the young guys coming out, fellows coming out into practice is be proactive. So one is you want to learn as much as you possibly can. So you do want to learn all these new therapies. The, the field is changing and it's changing pretty quickly. This is the same thing that happens with in, in cardiology with pacemakers and uh, angiography. It happened in neurosurgery with open cranial aneurysms that we now treat with coiling and the vascular approaches. You know, so this has happened in other spaces and it's happening now in ours. So I think we need to embrace it, be proactive about learning. And, you know, the the other thing is, is being proactive of trying to actually have these relationships in your community. Don't just rely on the fact that you assume that a spine surgeon is sending you stuff or that they're doing what you want them to do or vice versa with a surgeon thinking that of you. You have to be proactive and talk with the surgeons and the surgeons should be talking with the interventional pain community as well. I can tell you that, you know, I've gone through three practices uh, in my training as an attending, and I've used a very similar model to set up my practice, which is really completely revolves around having relationships between pain physicians and spine surgeons. And for instance, I do a lot of spinal cord stimulation. I feel very skilled to do percutaneous access if I want to do it, but I also also like doing paddle electrodes and laminectomies. So one of the things that the model that I have set up is I like to just do permanent implants. So what that means is even when I identify a patient who could benefit from a stimulator, I send them out to a colleague, an interventional pain physician, to do the trial. 
under the assumption they'll send me back the permanent implant. But then it's also the relationship on my side is I assume that when that interventional pain person identifies stimulator candidates and they do the trial, that they'll also send me the permanent implants. So it's it's a relationship where I say, you know, we can do more together if, you know, let's say we you have the agreement that you're doing the trial and I'm doing a permanent implant, especially if it's a paddle electrode. And I think that helps foster a relationship. So the advice would be when you're proactive is to find ways that you help each other as opposed to just kind of living in your own silos. Yeah, I like that. Like you said, it's very complimentary. And then building that relationship and being proactive. Talk to us, Dr. Filoski, a little bit practically, how can people go out and learn the new technologies? I know there's weekend courses. I know there's the industry-sponsored events. But how does one take that knowledge and implement it into their everyday practice? Yeah, good question. I mean, these courses, uh, they're they're offered by industry. So, every, But always understand that each specific company has a bias towards their own product, but there's nothing wrong with going to learn technique and, all for, and patient selection for their products. You'll find a lot of education through society offerings, especially like PSPS offers these cadaver courses with all these different therapies and gives you exposure to it in a non-biased way. So you have exposure to all the different companies, all the different stimulators, interspinous devices, SI fusion devices. So I think that that's something you want to do to learn it as well. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Keeping an open mind, taking the information, look at the literature yourself and really utilize this technology as well as the societies that we have available. Yes. Dr. Filoski, you've been very kind with your time. Anything else you'd like to, parting words of wisdom, are there anything you'd recommend people, books for them to read, any committees, any uh, societies you recommend people out there join? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. One big recommendation is is actually to get involved with some type of society work. It doesn't mean you have to do it on a large level. It doesn't mean you have to give up like every weekend. It, it means that you want to try to at least join some committee, try to give back. You know, always remember that your predecessors before you contributed a lot to this space to get you where you are. So when you're coming out of fellowship and all, all the training and all the data that you get to read about and all these new techniques and therapies all came from predecessors before you who gave back. And that means in society, through working with industry. So I always recommend that you try to do at least something, join some kind of committee, and you can do it on any level. And PSPS has many committees from like education committees to advocacy committees and so on. The other thing I can tell you is with, with Jason Pope and myself, we, we actually even wrote a textbook on called Integrating Pain Treatments into Your Spine Practice. And the entire book revolves around how do you develop relationships between pain physicians and surgeons? And this is, we wrote this book several years ago, and it was something we realized that for this space to continue to grow the way it's growing with the new therapies and these overlapping skill sets, we have to learn how to have those relationships. So I would highly recommend reading that book as well. Nice. I'm looking at it right now on uh, Amazon. So I recommend, yeah, people very easy to get. Any particular, you mentioned some organizations, any particular one that you'd recommend people to go to besides PSPS? PSPS is, is a great one. And I also recommend Aspen. Aspen's a very good one for especially up-and-coming fellows and new attendings who just, with Aspen, we try to make it very easy for physicians to get involved. It's also very much on the cutting edge. We embrace industry. We embrace new data and publications. And then, of course, there's always the, the tried and true NANS, the North American Neuromodulation Society and, and INS, which have kind of been a hallmark in, in our space, especially for neuromodulation therapies as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. 
Dr. Velosky, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. This has been really great, very valuable information, and we thank you. No, thank you for having me. I really very much appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference. Thank you.